What we saw sort of in the um, recovery from the 2008 recession was actually that the government didn't spend enough. And as a result, the economy stayed sort of suppressed for a long time and unemployment stayed high and job creation stayed lower than it needed to be. Um, and as you know, that that affects everyone across the board, it affects white people, affects Latinos, affects Asians, affects African-Americans. Welcome to the Black Agenda Podcast. I'm your co-host, Adrian Guest, here with my co-host, Devin Dito. America is a nation of great wealth and resources, listeners. Money, expertise, those aren't necessarily issues for us, but maybe the focus and desire to get things done, maybe that's what we're missing. To talk about this today, um, we're going to be having a conversation around this issue, and we want to point out that we actually have a president and a leading party, the Democrats, who are really trying to use resources to bring about more equality. And to help us, we're joined today by Amy Hanauer, Executive Director of the Institute on Taxation Economic Policy. And before we get started, let's talk a little bit about Amy. Amy joined ITEP in 2020, bringing nearly 30 years of experience working to create economic policy that advances social justice. As an Executive Director of both ITEP and Citizens for Tax Justice, Amy provides vision and leadership to promote fair and equitable state and national tax policy. Amy is the author of several publications on worker justice, green jobs, and racial and economic equity. In addition to that, Amy holds multiple leadership posts at the national level, including as a board member for both the American Prospect and Demos Action. So Amy, listeners, great conversation that we're in store. Uh, And Amy, thank you for being with us. Yeah, thanks so much. I'm really looking forward to this conversation. Yeah, for sure. I think um, you know, I'm biased, obviously, because you know I kind of had the idea, and Dev and I we have been going strong. But I think it's going to be a great conversation. We always, you know, do it up here at the Black Agenda. But um, listeners, just to let you know, the first segment we're kind of talking about the importance of government spending. And Amy, to start our conversation, you know, um, when I think about you know a couple of things, I always like to make it clear uh, with government spending as far as you know what the purpose of the government is. And in my mind, you know, yes, the government's supposed to be providing, you know, national security infrastructure, all those sorts of things. But I feel like another focus is really to correct some of the inefficiencies that we have due to a free market economy, um, because a lot of those inefficiencies exist in various reasons, whether they be wage gaps, uh, housing, healthcare, even in investments on the personal level. So our first question to you, Amy. Um, what do you say to people to get them to see that, you know, government spending, yes, should go towards infrastructure and things of that nature, but it needs to also go towards correcting some of these inefficiencies that we're seeing here in our country today? Yeah, absolutely. That's a that's a great way to talk about it. I mean, look, we we I think we just like don't always see the things that the public sector is spending money on that are doing things for us. I once saw this kind of hilarious, except that it was kind of tragic at the same time, this video of people riding on BART, the Bay Area Regional Transit System in um, San Francisco area. And they were asking them, you know, what is BART? And and these riders were like, I don't know, is it a public-private partnership? Like you're riding public transit, people. So I think that sometimes it just can go ignored or, or misunderstood that like when we turn on our taps and we get clean water, when we breathe clean air, when we send our kids to a good school, when we when we ride a good bus or a train system, that's the public sector working for us. And when those things aren't working, it's often because they've been consciously disinvested in, and we've seen that obviously overboard in the Black community. Um, so we have a situation like Flint where the water isn't clean, um, when clean water ought to be one of the things we can easily expect in a nation as wealthy as ours. So I agree with you completely. Like we, we need the public sector to provide us with, with our basics, but also to kind of correct for those things that aren't working in the market. Exactly. And you kind of touched on a little bit that the equitable spending across all communities is what's needed. Um, And we can't just ignore certain ones, but I kind of wanted to talk a little bit about just when we talk about government spending, you know, particularly in the media and with our politicians, it's, I feel like nobody's really having the right conversation around it. Like we're framing it in the wrong way. You know, oftentimes politicians rail against the government for spending too much because 
they'll say, well, the government needs to stick within its own budget. Like, you know, everyday Americans do. It needs to be run like a business. You know, you can't just be spending over your means every single year. And so that's a criticism oftentimes of the federal government. But as we both know, as we all know here, the government is not a normal family. It's not a normal business. And so when we talk about government spending, you know, is it right or wrong to criticize the you know government spending by saying they should spend within their means like everyday people? And how, yeah. how should we frame this conversation properly? Yeah, no, that's a, that's a terrific question. And here's the thing. I mean, the, the thing about public spending is that a lot of it actually supports our economy being a lot stronger going forward. And so what we saw sort of in the um, recovery from the 2008 recession was actually that the government didn't spend enough. And as a result, the economy stayed sort of suppressed for a long time and unemployment stayed high and job creation stayed lower than it needed to be. Um, and as you know, that that affects everyone across the board, it affects white people, affects Latinos, affects Asians, affects African-Americans, but it affects the black community and Latino community more because typically in any time period, whether it's good times or bad times, black unemployment tends to be higher. So when we have low job creation or high unemployment, it's going to hurt all of us and it's going to particularly hurt um, communities that that have fewer resources. Um and the reason that I like I think your question is a really good one because we're we're not we're not like a regular family. If we spend now to make sure that kids aren't poor, you know, they're gonna end up more likely to graduate from high school, less likely to have a kid too early that they can't support, more likely to have a job, more likely to pay taxes themselves in the future. So it's just it's spending that more than pays for itself down the road, and that's why we can't afford to be stingy. Absolutely. And, you know, it's it just reminds me of so much of my because my undergrad is in economics. And, you know, when we talked a lot about I can know, tell. Pu- <laughs> 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 well, yeah, thank you. Um, well, but when we talked about, you know, public goods and different things of that nature and talked about, you know, how government spending um, really helps to offset a lot of, you know, private investments, helps to make sure that the environment is set up that people can actually operate it makes sense that we should be doing this and not to look at it about, you know, a business because it's not about profits, you know, that, that, you know, I, obviously we were a business, we would have to care about our profits and stock price and shareholders, but the government's not that way. The government is of the people, by the people, for the people. And if the people are demanding certain things of you, then you've got to do that. But uh, Devin, I know you've got a follow-up question. I just wanted to, uh, I just wanted to hit that. <laughs> No, I mean that's a, that's a great point, but you know when you were talking about you know not being stingy and and getting people to understand that the the spending and investments we make now pay off later, you know it, it made me think of like people like Joe Manchin and the Kirsten Cinemas and and the folks who are holding up the spending uh, bills that are trying to get through Congress and just you know not to pick on Republicans, but the Republican Party sometimes can stand in the way of investments getting to our community when you're talking about that government spending. Um, I mean, just maybe talk just a little bit about when you do ignore a community for decades, you will eventually have to right those wrongs. And we're going to have we're having to have that conversation now. But to me, it's just like we keep kicking this can down the road and saying, well, eventually we'll invest in infrastructure and really invest in black neighborhoods and rebuild the roads and and, uh, bring in, you know, fiber, uh, Internet and things like that that should have already been there. But they've just been chronically ignored just, you know, kind of explain why we have to get out of the, this this attitude where we can't just help one group and just ignore the other and say, well, you guys figure it out on your own. We have to bring everyone along or the country really can't achieve, you know, its, its highest, you know, possibilities because we're cutting out, you know, a, a large section of the country. Right. Well, and... So, so much of your say, what you're saying, I think, is is really provocative and, and worth us all thinking about because the situation that we have been historically in is that we have underinvested in some communities. Um, actually, we've, in a lot of ways, we've underinvested in all communities because we just leave a lot to the individual and the individual family in this country. In a lot of other places, healthcare is kind of a birthright, right? You know, free free childcare or low cost childcare and pre K is kind of a given. Transit is often much, much better, certainly in, in Western Europe and wealthy democracies that are kind of our peers. Um, 
And college is often, you know, free or extremely nominal in cost. So those are four huge, enormous costs that in the United States, it is expected that the individual family kind of has to figure that out. And that, so, so I, I want to just start by making clear that like underinvestment actually hurts us all. The second point is that underinvestment also really hurts employers because what we see is that there are times when employers really are kind of needing a well-trained workforce, needing a workforce that's healthy, you know, needing a workforce that get, that can come to work ready to ready to deal with things. And if their employees aren't vaccinated, um, don't have reliable transportation to get to work, are worrying because they know their kid is in low cost childcare or is just they had to stick them with a neighbor then um, or aren't well trained, then those are all things that actually hurt that corporation as well as that individual. So I think, you know, there's there's lots of different ways to talk about this and we can talk about it from an equity framework and we can talk about it from the fact that um, it's not fair and it's not right. And, and I'm happy to have that conversation, but it's also just stupid, right? Because <laughs> it doesn't, it doesn't help any of us and it doesn't help the very businesses that, um, that often are uh, at least have like the, um, their big institutions that claim to be speaking for the business community are often fighting against these very things that would, that would help that would actually- regular employers be able to um, hire. Yeah, you said so much great stuff, Amy. And one thing you said really stuck out to me because I had a recent conversation and I know we're going to take our first break, but um, you said so much is on the individual and on families here in the United States. And I had a, a conversation with someone who was 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 really in the sense that, you know, because we're, we've got so many uh, fatherless households and so many single parent homes that that's why America's played with so much. And I said, yeah, that's, that's, that might, that might be the, the issue. But if the government understands that that's a problem, then we can have certain services that bring about change in that issue. We can make sure that parents have daycare, make sure that there are you know after school programs and mentorship programs so that kids can have positive influences. It, you can't just say the, the fault is the family and the individual and government, you know, with all of our balanced resources, we can't do anything to intercede and step in to help that family. Um, you know, like I said, it's I'm I'm so glad that you brought that up because that's the issue that we're having that, you know, you know, having uh, health care, having child care, having, you know, UBI or something so that people can, you know, provide, you know, food on the table for these single parent families. You know, these are the things that we're talking about that we can be focusing on. So um, thank you for uh, helping to phrase our first segment here, Amy. Um, really great energy and some positive uh, comments, listeners. So make sure um, you're taking notes as you're going through this interview, listeners. It's great. Um, but we're going to take our first break here. When we come back, we're going to get into our second segment, talking about the Biden administration. Uh, so stick with us. We'll be right back. Thank you for listening to the Black Agenda podcast. We appreciate your support, and we ask that you like, share, and follow us on social media. You can find us on Facebook, IG, and Twitter at Black Agenda Pod. That's at Black Agenda Pod. Let's get back to the show. All right. Welcome back, listeners. So we are continuing our conversation with Miss Amy Hanauer. She's the executive director of the Institute on Taxation and Economic Policy. So, uh, Amy, in the first segment, we talked a lot about spending and what that means and why we need it. Um, and we're, we've gotten a lot of it in the last couple of years. We're now spending trillions with the T. We are past billions now. We're talking about trillion dollar spending packages um, within the last couple of years, trying to fight the COVID pandemic. And like you say, government didn't do enough in 2008. I, I would say that they probably have made up for that in 2020 with the amount of money and 21 with the amount of money that we spent. Um, and, and people thought during you know 2008 and during the recession that Congress spent an incredible amount of money, but what we're doing now is much larger. But Congress is now debating the Build Back Better plan, which is nearly $2 trillion. And then Congress just passed a $1.2 trillion infrastructure bill. So we're seeing larger bills now come through and a a more willingness, even on both the left and right, to spend more, whether it's infrastructure 
or, you know, right now this is really a social uh, equity kind of bill with the Build Back Better plan. So kind of what's your take on the the Biden administration and, and Democrats really essentially, you know, because of the budgetary process with reconciliation, they're having to stuff a bunch of different programs into one bill and try to spin it off as like, we need all of this spending. And so what is, what's your take on, on why they're having to stuff it all into one bill? And then, you know, one, does the bill actually pay for itself? And will we actually see some real tangible benefits from it? Um, you know, because it has been cut down because of the, you know, debating and negotiating with two namely Democrats, Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema. Yeah. Okay. Wow. So that was a huge amount That's of questions. <laughs> They're stuffing a lot into the bill and you're stuffing a lot into that question. Yeah. So I'm going to see what, see what I can do. And, uh, you know, so first of all, I mean, let me start with your last part, Devin, because that I think is, is really right. Like, will we see the benefits? I mean, absolutely. Right. Like we are looking at making sure that no family has to pay more than 7% for, for childcare for their, for their child. We're looking at universal pre-K so that um, we will have, you know, all kids in high quality pre-K settings. We're looking at climate investments that will be job creating, but that will also um, help to insulate our communities from the effects of climate change, or even begin kind of reversing some aspects of climate change. Um, we're looking at healthcare investments. So it is a really powerful piece of legislation that has a, a kind of concrete capacity to assist our families, I think, in ways that we just haven't done in our whole lifetimes. I mean, since I was a really little kid, I'm in my mid-50s. So I would say you'd have to go back to Lyndon B. Johnson's kind of great society programs to, to find this level of investment in people and communities. So I think it will absolutely be transformative for our families. Um, but the second thing is, you know, why do they have to put it all in one bill? And the reason is that we have a very undemocratic U.S. Senate. So um, <laughs> we basically have a, a Senate body that for a variety of reasons, both historic and current, um, overvalues the votes of rural white state, rural white dominated states, and tends to undervalue the votes of much more densely populated, larger states where lots of people of color are living. And what that means is that um, you know, the vote of a senator from West Virginia or Kentucky or Wyoming, you know, has way more power than the vote. Um, the vote of an individual from those places has way more power than the vote of an individual from New York City or California or, or the state of New York or um, oh, New Jersey, where I was born and raised. So, um, the, you know, that means that we just we end up with a body where we've got a majority of votes going to Democrats, but but we have like very evenly divided houses. So we need every single vote. And a couple of our Democratic senators are, you know, don't don't necessarily want to get behind the entire agenda and are really holding, um, you know, holding a lot of uh, barriers in place. Um, but I, I think we're going to get there. And as I as you said, I think that actually some of the things that have already passed this year are making a pretty big difference in our economy. And so we've got to just, uh, you know, kind of see if they can get over the last few hurdles. Absolutely. It's it's going to take some work um, because I, I see it as, you know, some people who say that, you know, you know, people are just needing to, you know, get a job and you know, start paying their bills and <laughs> be smarter about their money. Yeah, you can say that. I mean, you could say just go start a business, but these things are hard to do. And we know that there's a lot of barriers. But one of the things I wanted to pick up on, Amy, um, Devin mentioned about, you know, paying for this stuff. And we know that the the president, you know, plans to pay for this through a lot of taxation proposals. And in my mind, when I think about this, I say that this is fair um, because the wealthiest individuals and the largest corporations would not have those enormous, uh, enormous wealths without consumer consumption. You know, from Amazon to Microsoft to Tesla, Walmart, um, if we didn't spend our dollars there or if we boycott and protest, those, you know, share prices would fall. And I always say that this is the reason why, you know, wealthy individuals and corporations should pay more because we help to fund them. But I had a conversation with someone and said, and they said that, you know, Amazon is is providing such a great good for the society that Jeff Bezos is, 
you know, overpaid, you know, his fair share because of all the good that Amazon does with logistics and making it easy for the consumer to, you know, do stuff. And he feels that if we continue to tax wealthy corporations, individuals, it's going to take away an incentive for people to want to have wealth and want to succeed in our country. So, Amy, you maybe can help to sort this myth out for us. Should we be concerned that by having all these tax proposals, we're going to disincentivize people to you know want to have wealth in our country? Yeah, I mean, you know, it's 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 just kind of preposterous, right? So, my organization, ITAP, and your your listeners can find us on at on the web at itep.org. We did some research earlier this year that found that fifty five profitable Fortune 500 corporations, despite earning billions in profits, paid absolutely nothing in taxes in 2020. And there were a whole bunch of others that paid way less than half the statutory rate. So, you know, if we were thinking of having like sort of confiscatory tax levels where we where we took 100% of your profits, that might be one thing. But we're talking about corporations that earn billions and pay zero or pay 3% or pay 6% when they're supposed to pay 21%. So, um, it is there may be a point at which high really high taxes would disincentivize certain activities but we are so far away from that point adrian that that the the question is kind of silly on its face um and i don't mean you but but you know your your friend and so um you know i think jeff bezos um there might be a point where he has a disincentive from reinvesting, but but we're nowhere near that yet. And I think the the other thing that I would just say is um, it's not just the consumers that spend and consumer spending that that helps these corporations. You know, the training we provide for their workforce, the infrastructure we provide to help them get their products out to market. Um, you know, the 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 legal and regulatory system we provide so that they can, they can be sure that they can protect their profits. There is just so much that the public sector provides that makes it possible to, to be really successful in this country. And so, you know, they, they should want, they should want us contribute their fair share. Yeah, I think so too. I mean, I, not to say that, you know, to tell people how they should spend their money or that, you know, I, I'm not a Bernie Sanders where I'm going to say billionaires are immoral. I, I know that people have great ideas and because of capitalism and globalism, um, you know, globalization, you can sell your products to, you know, billions of people. So I understand that. But another thing that I wanted to make sure to bring up because I've seen a lot of reports, particularly from, you know, more conservative, um, you know, right wing Republican media outlets talking about how President Biden is going to raise the taxes on everybody. But, you know, I feel from actually diving into the actual proposals and the spending bills, it's about like a global minimal tax rate, you know, wealth tax, getting corporations to pay their fair share. So could you speak to that a little bit to kind of, you know, calm people who are maybe low to middle class who thinking that they're going to have to pay more in taxes? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. So here's the thing. I mean, the vast majority, um, well, there are no tax increases in this bill on anybody earning under $400,000 a year. So you earn $200,000 a year, you earn $50,000 a year, you earn $75,000 a year, your taxes are not going to go up as a result of this bill. The only tax increases for individuals in this bill are a surtax on millionaires and billionaires. Um, So that is... um, that that's thing number one. It's just like an absolute, like it's just an absolute basic, right? That the ta- the taxes are not going to go up on people earning kind of middle income wages. Second thing is even in terms of corporations, um, we're looking at the only thing we're looking at is making sure there's a fifteen percent minimum corporate tax that's paid. So it's really just trying to get at those corporations that aren't coming close to paying their fair share and. Um, and again, that actually only applies to to really large corporations with over a billion dollars in profits. Um, you know, if I were the one writing this, I'd probably I'd probably extend it a little further down the uh, the food chain there because I think you can you can be a pretty profitable corporation earning say multi million dollars, and you could probably still afford you should be able to afford to pay fifteen percent in taxes because the fact is that you know your corner store does pay their taxes; they can't afford the sort of um, high priced tax attorneys and accountants to get them out of it. Um, mm-hmm. You guys 
pay your taxes on your day jobs, right? I mean, you get a paycheck and it's already got your taxes deducted from it. So um, you really don't you really don't have the opportunity that a Donald Trump or Jeff Bezos has to kind of manipulate your books to, to um, reduce your, reduce your tax payments. So I think it's really essential that we recognize the way that this bill is going to fund what it's doing is going to be by increasing taxes on the very wealthiest people and the very largest corporations. Yeah. I mean, I, I, Totally agree. I think they should, you know, pay their fair share. And, you know, one thing I know we go into break, but I just was thinking about it, why they should pay their fair share is if you look at the last round when Amazon was trying to choose its headquarters locations, if you looked at some of the proposals that the host cities were trying to, you know, get them to, you know, choose their location, some of the things in these proposals were just like outrageous. Like some of these tax incentives that they give to these large companies to bring a headquarters to the area have just gone far, far overboard. And so you think about it, like they get these incentives to move somewhere and then on top of that, they don't pay taxes. So it's just like, it's a double loss for the people in the city and also just for the country as a whole. So it's just like, they're getting their cake and, and they're eating it too. And it's just, you know, at some point you have to contribute back. Cause like you say, we're paying for the infrastructure and, and to help you be able to run your business properly. And if we didn't have that proper investment, you wouldn't be able to run an Amazon if you didn't have roads to drive on paid by paid for by taxpayers. No, that, <laughs> and I don't want to, I don't want to run up against your break, but I have mm-hmm. to get back to one thing that Adrian also touched on, which is just sort of the advantages of Amazon to our economy, right? Look, the fact is that there's increasing concentration of, of, um, resources in just a few big employers and businesses in this country. And I don't think that that's actually to any of our advantage, because what we see with that increasing monopolization is that it makes it actually really hard to contribute. It makes it hard to create another business. It makes it hard to compete as a, as a normal size employer. And so, um, and it makes it, it can make it really hard for workers to actually organize and get fair wages. So Mm -hmm. one of the really interesting analyses that I saw in the course of this, um, this recession and and the kind of COVID lockdowns is that uh, UPS drivers who are unionized versus FedEx drivers who are not unionized had a very, very different experience going into this and had a very different experience during it. And actually it worked to UPS, the company's advantage because their employer, their employees had negotiated a pretty decent kind of lifelong um, package of of compensation, and they were able to retain them even when times got tough in a way that FedEx wasn't. So some of this stuff is complicated. I know I'm running up against your break, but it's it's all pretty interesting. No, no, you're fine. Anytime you want to jump in with something, that's what this podcast is for, for us to educate the public on various issues. So we appreciate that, Amy. But as Amy alluded to, we are going to give you a break, listeners. Make sure you stick with us. we got another segment with great questions to cover. So stick with us. We'll be right back. Would you like to contribute to our scholarship fund? Would you like to help us partner with nonprofits? Would you like to submit a topic request or maybe even appear on our show? If so, go to patron.podbean.com forward slash Black Agenda Pod. Thank you for your donation and belief in our mission. Let's get back to the show. All right, listeners, welcome back. We're getting into our third segment here. Remember, we're joined by Amy Hanauer, Executive Director of the Institute on Taxation and Economic Policy. And listeners, our third segment is always looking forward. What's next? Um, Amy, I always like to think of myself as a little bit more of a moderate, sometimes a little bit more liberal on social issues. But regardless of the issue, I like to listen to both sides and try to you know, come to a consensus. And obviously, one side with all these spending bills keeps saying that we're adding to the national debt. We can't continue at this level of spending, especially when you consider what Devin said, you know, the BBB plan about $2 trillion, the infrastructure $1.2 trillion. So my question to you, Amy, um, you know, is this level of spending sustainable? And how do you think this is going to change once we get a Republican or, say, a Democrat like Joe Manchin in the White House? Yeah. Um, well, so first of all, I think it's important for people to realize that we, we sometimes overemphasize sort of the price tag of this bill. And whenever we're talking about price tag, we're usually talking about a 10 year price tag. 
And then interestingly enough, like when we were talking about the price of Trump's tax cuts, which went overwhelmingly to the very wealthiest people and to corporations, we didn't actually, we only talked about, um, we we didn't talk about a net cost. So we, we only talked about like kind of what was being spent and here, here on the, the, Build Back Better plan, we're not really including all the revenue that's being raised. So this bill is actually mostly paid for in contrast to um, President Trump's tax cuts, which were mostly deficit finance. So it's a, it's a little bit complicated, but we have tax increases on the wealthiest people and on corporations that actually pay for most of the provisions in this bill. Not to mention that if we... Um, if we do the spending that is kind of being proposed in this bill, a lot of it is going to reduce our costs down the road because when kids are in high quality childcare, as I mentioned at the beginning, they, they end up being more productive down the road. Um, when we, when we do some infrastructure spending, which was kind of a part of the last infrastructure bill, it ends up making our communities kind of more resilient and, and more able to move forward down the road. So I think it's, um, it's just really, you know, it's just really important that we recognize that this spending is going to make our economy more productive and failing to spend is going to, is going to make our economy kind of stagnant. Yeah. I mean, I think that's the interesting, interesting thing where with each, you know, party, when they get into the white house, we sort of have these jerks left or right, mm-hmm. you know, it's like Democrats spend and they spend a lot and then Republicans cut taxes without having to, you know, cut spending as well. They've now just gone totally, we're just going to cut taxes and, and, and just raise the deficit and it's fine. Um, it just seems like neither party is really worried about the deficit and and the, uh, the national debt and that's growing. And so I guess my question was, although it doesn't seem like neither party is really worried about the deficit or the or the national debt, are you concerned at all when you look at it and how much it has grown over the past you know, a couple decades, do you worry that that could have an effect on the economy, you know, say in the next 10, 20 or, or 30 years? I mean, so I really worry when we, when we increase the deficit to spend on things that don't kind of in, um, enrich our communities and make, make us kind of set us up better for the future. So I do worry when we see tax cuts that go overwhelmingly to the top 1%, and that's what we saw under the Trump administration. I do worry when we see incredibly high levels of military spending that isn't necessarily accounted for. Um, I don't worry nearly as much when we're talking about spending on climate change because the cost of failing to address climate change is actually going to going to have huge enormous economic costs down the road and we see that basically every summer when there are fires in California and when there are storms up and down the Gulf Coast and and up and down the kind of lower um southeast portion of the country when there are floods in in Iowa and Indiana um we see the economic costs of failing to deal with climate change. So I I feel like we have to pay a little bit of attention when we think about spending to whether we're spending on something that's going to help our economy be more resilient going forward or help our economy be less resilient. And I will just also say that I think the Trump tax cuts, which overwhelmingly went to the wealthiest people and to corporations, not only did they not make us more economically resilient, you know, I would argue that by con- by spiking inequality so in such an extreme way, they made us less resilient as a society because when we get so economically inequitable, you end up in a situation where people just don't understand each other's experiences. They don't have a good sense of why someone else um, doesn't see the world the way they do. And, you know, I, I, I noticed it like with COVID vaccine hesitancy, right? Like instead of vilifying people and criticizing people, like why don't we sort of say, well, why, why is it that someone feels worried about taking that vaccine and can we talk to them about it? And there was just a piece in today's paper that, that kind of argued it's partly because people don't, don't know who to trust because they haven't necessarily gotten the returns that they deserve to get from, from our public sector. So I think we just have to, we have to think about what makes us a more resilient, more cohesive, more equitable society as a whole going forward. No, I think that's, that's a great point. You know, I hadn't really thought about it that way as far as what the Trump tax cuts actually did. Of course, we all know that they went, those tax breaks went to the, the wealthy and corporations, but 
the, the spike in inequality, I think, is something we hadn't really talked about. I think we had had previous conversations on this show about what the trap the Trump tax cuts actually did. But I think, you know, a lot of times we have to have there's like a healthy amount of inequity to where people feel as though they can achieve and be able to socially be, you know, be mobile and move up, you know, and, and you know, their kids can have a better, you know, future. But you can, it can be such a gap where people get disincentivized and say, well, what's the purpose? There's no point because I'm never going to make it up there. And I feel like we're teetering in between, you know, people well, feeling that way. You know, Devin, it's really funny because um, I sometimes talk to people who want to give um, give money to my organization. We rely on contributions. And uh, one, one of our donors is a really, really wealthy guy. And he feels like the biggest problem with the Trump tax cuts and with these inequitable um approaches to taxation is he doesn't think it's good for kids of the uber, uber rich to be born into that much wealth to where they don't even know how to go about creating their own lives. He doesn't really understand um, the kind of economic challenges that are faced by people who grow up in deep poverty in this country. Mm -hmm. But the point is, it's actually not good for either end of the spectrum. You're much better, you know, how is it living out the American dream to just inherit an enormous amount of wealth? I think you're living out the American dream when you get up and you work hard and you you build something and you um, you know do what you need to do to feel like you've contributed and you're supporting yourself and your family um, and, and getting the help that you need to do that. So that's right, Amy. That that disconnect that you're talking about, that was I had a conversation over Thanksgiving with someone for three hours, um, and it frustrated everyone, but it was a thoughtful conversation. <laughs> but that was that was kind of the end of it. We both said our closing arguments. We even did it in a in a manner to let each other know that this is the last thing we were gonna say because <laughs> we had been talking for three hours. But it was that disconnect that we have here in our country of some people saying that you just need to pick yourself up by your bootstraps. America is a land of opportunity and, you know, resources. And then a lot of other people who are just saying, um, we started off here and, you know, we're just trying to get the same equal access and opportunity and, you know, don't know how we resolve it, but that's what the black agenda is here to do. Have conversations with experts like yourself so that we can eventually lobby leaders and get to better policy. So we appreciate um, your, your positions on that. Um, Devin, I know that you had a, another follow-up here. Were you going to do your follow-up? I guess I can't. Maybe you just, it's a quick question. It's really honestly just for me, just Thinking long term, we hear it all the time that Social Security and Medicare are going to be in trouble, you know, in some years. And that when we retire, me and Adrian, it's not going to be there. So we can't count on the government to be able to support us. And so I was just going to, you know, get your take on whether do you see on the horizon large changes to some of the, you know, things like Social Security and Medicare to help the government close the deficits and not you know, grow the, the national debt as much as we are. Yeah. Um, you know, so look, I, Social Security is going to be there unless we do something really crazy to undermine it. And I think that there are <laughs> there are decisions that need to be made to, to keep the funding mechanisms for these programs strong. It's one of the reasons why a really closed-minded approach to immigration is, is problematic because we need young people to help pay for our Social Security system. Um, but you know, there's there's no reason for you all to doubt those programs. But the truth is that we as a country need to make political decisions that benefit all of us, right? Like every single thing that gets talked about, like we're just helpless and what are we going to do about the economy? We create the economy that we want to have. So if we want an economy where everybody has a shot at success, if we want an economy where everybody has their basic needs met, we can make that decision. And for a long time in this country, we did make those decisions to kind of construct our economy that way. And I think in the past 30 years, um, 40 years, maybe we've gotten a little bit away from that. But the time when our economy was growing most strongly, like the middle of the 20th century, um, leaving aside some real challenges around race that we had during that, that period, the reason that our economy was growing really strongly was because we were creating policies that said we're going to tax the wealthiest in corporations, we're going to let middle class people, at least certainly middle class white people, um, get ahead. And what we saw over the course of the 20th century was that whether you were low income, 
lower middle income, middle income, upper middle income, or upper income, your your wages and income were growing, your lifespans were growing. So we've got to think about what was wrong with that period and not replicate it, but we've got to think about what was right with that period and, and think about how we can get that back into our public policy. And I think the Build Back Better plan does do quite a chunk of that. No, I, I totally agree. And I've said it to Adrian before. It's like, we have the blueprints for things that work to help people get ahead. And I always point to the GI Bill and how that was a huge mechanism for allowing a generation of, of veterans to get ahead, come back, you get home loans, you get job placement, you get skills training, like the whole nine. Like we have the plans, we know how to do it. We just did it for one community back then and not exactly. ours. We just need to take that blueprint and now apply it to our community. Exactly. <laughs> but <laughs> so we'll go ahead and get, uh, get into our last break. And we just have one more question for you, Amy, and we'll get you out of here. So uh, we're going to take a quick break listeners and we'll be right back. Thank you for listening to the black agenda podcast. We appreciate your support and we ask that you like share and follow us on social media. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at black agenda pod. That's at Black Agenda Pod. Let's get back to the show. All right, listeners, as always, we're wrapping up our conversation with our expert guests doing our final message. Remember, we have been joined today by Amy Handauer, Executive Director of the Institute on Taxation Economic Policy. And Amy, to set the stage for your final message, here it is. You know, communities of color have always been behind the eight ball for a long time. And finally, we're at a point where we've got some legislation in the chambers that might actually help to wrong some of America's greatest or rather right some of America's greatest wrongs. Um, you know, I think as a nation, we we don't understand this, but we need to. We're fully connected. I mean, you know, if, if, if someone's struggling in your community and they ha- don't have health insurance, they go to the emergency room, you're paying for that. I mean, it, we, we need every citizen in our country to be productive, contributing members. And for this to happen, we got to level the playing field. You know, we got to create an opportunity for everyone, have an environment where people can succeed. So, Amy, for a final message and a message of hope to kind of just take us on, why is it so important for the future of our nation and for generations to come for us to get this moment of economic justice that we're in right now? Why is it so important for us to get it right? Yeah, you know, that's a it's a beautiful question, really, because we we do need to get it right. And I think we need to, first of all, just to like fulfill the ideals of what we say this country is about, right? Like we're we're all we all kind of got a set of education when we were little kids and some of that may have been inaccurate but i think we all want to we all want to feel proud of the country we live in and to the degree that we are delivering this country's um benefits unequally it's hard to feel it's hard to feel proud of that and so um and i think what the other thing is that when you look at this covid uh, crisis that we've been through in the last two years, it kind of reinforced how interdependent we all are, right? Like we're not, you're not going to be okay if your neighbor has a disease that you can catch and that can, that can kill you. Right. And you're not going to be okay if, if, um, if, if you don't feel safe going to work or if you don't feel safe going out in your community. And so I just think that there's a huge amount that we can do to deliver good policy, to deliver it in an equitable way. And I'm I'm kind of excited to see us imagining for the first time in my lifetime, you know, a set of policies that I actually think could bring us a long way toward delivering that. So there's always going to be more to do, but I, but I'm pretty impressed to see the ambition that this administration has put into a uh, a tax agenda that taxes the wealthy and corporations and uses those resources to invest in education, climate amelioration, early childhood um, education, you know, poverty reduction, things that are going to make us just a better America and maybe the America we were meant to be. That's that's a great message. And and that's one thing, you know, hearing you wrap it up there and and that awesome answer that you gave. Um, I was, you know, I thought about as we're talking about government spending and the economy and how it works best when everyone is, is brought along and we put equity at the top of our list of things that we need to achieve. You know, it's like, I, I went back to like when, when Martin Luther King Jr. 
moved away from civil rights and he was focusing on economic rights before he was assassinated, he had, you know, he was working on that chunk and that was going to be something that would have, you know, really revolutionized our community because economic rights is honestly just as important as civil rights. You could even say maybe a touch more important because it affects everybody. And so, like you say, now it's in the open. We're talking about economic justice and equity and, and the way that we spend money and where that money's going, the communities that benefit from it. Now all of that is more so in the open. We can have more honest conversations about what we haven't done in the past and what that has led to today and what we're still dealing with, but also what we need to change going into the future. And like you say, the Build Back Better plan is a great start. It doesn't fix everything, but it's a lot more that we have, you know, that we've gotten in the past. And so it's an awesome start. And so it does make me more hopeful that things maybe will start to finally change. At the very least, we're having a much different different conversation from even when President Obama was in office. I don't think he could have done the Build Back Better plan. That just lets you know how much things have changed in, you know, 10 or 10 or 12 years. So, yeah, you know, yeah. and I just have to say one thing. I mean, I think it's just really important that we recognize that this next generation of young people is the most diverse, the most educated, um, you know, the, 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 and the most progressive generation of young people that we've ever had. And I think that young people are not, um, they're, they're worried about the climate. They recognize the sort of policing crisis that we have in this country at, they they are facing these incredibly high levels of college debt. And despite that, they're becoming more educated than any generation before them, despite the fact that you only can do that at, at great personal economic sacrifice. So I feel really hopeful when I look at this next generation and the things that they want to demand. Um, look, it's complicated. It's hard to get policy through in a, in a really... Um, complicated and difficult and large country. But I am heartened that I that I just think when I look at my own kids, the kids in their 20s, um, people in their teens, they are saying we need a non-racist world. We need a world with economic opportunity. We need to deal with climate. We need to help people go to college. And I think that that's a lot of what um, middle-aged people maybe also always wanted, right? To, to know that their families were going to be supported and be able to get what they wanted, but get what they needed and have the education and be able to, um, to do better than the previous generation. But I see, I see young people today kind of demanding that. And that gives me some hope. It, it gives me hope as well, Amy, because in our first episode of the podcast, we, you know, ended on the fact that change might take some people having to die, unfortunately, but we do know that the younger generation is coming up with a lot more positivity, a lot more hopefulness. Um, and they understand that, you know, history isn't like a snapshot in time. The things of our past have led us to today. Like someone, you know, I talked about slavery with someone. They're like, why are you talking about slavery? That didn't affect you. And I said, well, let me, let me school you on something real quick. <laughs> um, and that's where we are today where people don't really understand why President Biden is trying to do the BBB plan and why he's trying to invest in a lot of areas where historically our nation has under and disinvested in a lot of communities. So we appreciate you, Amy, and the work that you all are doing at the Institute on Taxation and Economic Policy. Um, you said it uh, once on the show, but before we let you go, let our listeners know how they can learn more about ITEP and how they can follow along the work with y'all. Yeah. Um, so you can look for us on Twitter at ITEP tweets. <laughs> you can look for me on Twitter at Amy Hanauer, A-M-Y-H-A-N-A-U-E-R. Um, and, you know, you can go to our website at ITEP.org. And, you know, basically what we're, what we're about is we should tax rich people and corporations to pay for the things that all of our communities need. And we should use our tax system also to bring about equity. So there's <laughs> lots of ways to do that. And, and we are very excited to be part of that conversation. Awesome. Awesome. Well, we are excited uh, to have you on our show today. We've had two conversations on taxation this season. The first was really about how taxation helps uh, create inequality and now talking about how we can use taxation to better our society. So listeners, we hope that you've been able to get a lot of uh, you know nuggets out of Amy's conversation here. We have definitely got a lot, but we're going to take one last break. And when we come back, Devin and I are just going to give you some insight into the upcoming schedule. So make sure you stick with us. We'll be right back. 
You have been listening to the Black Agenda podcast hosted by Adrian Guest and Devin Dito. If you enjoy listening to the show, let the host know by leaving a review on Apple Podcast or by visiting patron.podbean.com forward slash Black Agenda Pod and give a few dollars. After all, the Black Agenda podcast is supported by listeners like you. Let's get back to the show. All right, welcome back, listeners. So, as always, we like to give you a look forward as to what is upcoming on the podcast. And our look forward today is going to be different because this is our very last episode of 2021. So, there's not a lot to look forward to, at least for the rest of this year. Uh, our next episode, our next weekly roundup, all of that is going to be coming to you in a new year in 2022. Um, and so, again, this has been a, a great season. It's been an awesome season for us to see the podcast grow. Uh, we're going to give you some stats at the end, but this was an awesome year, and we enjoyed talking with Miss Amy, Han- Amy Hanauer of the uh, Institute on Taxation and Economic Policy, and all of our guests really have been pretty amazing. Our weekly run-ups are doing great, and we just appreciate your support in, in helping us have, I wouldn't say record, but it's been a record year for us, our first full year um, doing the Black Agenda And so 2021 has been a great year. 2022 is going to be just as good or better. So you have more to look forward to here at the Black Agenda Podcast. So we're going to be taking a break. Our next regular episode is going to be coming to you in early January of 2022. It's already shaping up to be a great opener. So make sure you get ready for that. Um, Our next weekly roundup is going to be coming back in 2022 as well. So just make sure you stick, you know, follow us on Facebook and Twitter uh, and Instagram to keep up with what we're doing during the break. But we will be taking a hiatus, as you can say, for the holidays. As you go visit your family and friends and everyone else, we're going to be doing the same here and getting ready for another great season. It'll be season four of the Black Agenda coming in 2022. So to wrap it up, there is no weekly roundup next this Saturday. There is no upcoming new episode that's all coming to you in 2022. One thing that you can do right now, though, in 2021 is still donate and help us out. Our donation website is still up and running. It's not going to be shut off just like, like the rest of the podcast. And so agents going to let you know how you can help us out. Yeah, I like how you said that. That's funny. Um, but yeah, Devin is right. We will we'll be accepting donations all throughout Christmas, all throughout New Year. Um, we look forward to um, our donation ringer just going off. But I always like to say why you should donate, um, even beyond helping us to bring you amazing conversations and great news. Devin and I are really trying to bring you an organization that's transforming communities. Um, we're trying to bring you an organization that's advancing movements, legislation, policy changes to help our community. Uh, and we can't do that without you. I mean, that's why we're doing this is because of you you know, by you, for you, whatever you want to say about the government. You know, we're trying to make that happen here at the Black Agenda so you can feel that we're contributing to your local community. But what you do to make that possible for us is you just go to our website. It's blackagendapie.com. Or if you're listening to us on the Pie Bean app, you can click the donate tab that you're looking at right now. You'll get in there and you'll notice different levels of donations. And you'll notice that you'll get things from Devin and myself as you donate to us. But like I said, if you believe in what we're trying to do, you want to see us grow, go to blackagendapie.com, click the donate tab and start giving. The other thing, our charity of the month, last time you get to hear about this for 2021, Unicorn Riot. Remember, they are an educational 501c3 nonprofit media organization of journalists. They were born in 2015 as a commercial-free platform operating independent of corporate or government control. They really work to amplify the stories of social and environmental struggles from the ground up. So go check them out. Um, they're, in, you know, like I said, you can go to their website and different things like that. But like I said, that is called Unicorn Riot. That is right. So make sure you help out Unicorn Riot, but also help us out here at the Black Agenda podcast. It is the season of giving. So make sure you give to both organizations if you can. Uh, before we go, we wanted to thank our guest again, Miss Amy Hanauer. She's the executive director of the Institute on Taxation and economic policy. And really, what a great conversation to end the season on. We talked a lot about, you know, government spending. We've talked about, you know, reparations and the child tax credit and what that's doing for child poverty and 
all of that costs. It costs money, real dollars, and we're just wondering who's going to pay for it and can we afford it, but also how we should even approach the conversation surrounding government spending. So it's an excellent way to end the season. And before we go, we also wanted to not only thank our guests, Amy, but also you, our listeners. This has been a great year. I mentioned it at the beginning of our our ending here, but 2021 was the first full year that we've been doing the Black Agenda podcast. We started in June of 2020, and this is our first full year. And we had nearly 7,000 downloads this year. And that is all because of you, our listeners, for tuning in and supporting us and listening to me and Adrian give our commentary on all sorts of topics. We have been all over the map here, especially in season three, from taxes to comedy to policing. We have been all over the map. But that just goes to show you we are not just a one-trick pony here at The Black Agenda. We can talk about any topic and approach it from an educational standpoint. And that's our goal, is to educate the community. And just to let you know also how well things are going, our most downloaded show from this year Actually, we just did it last month, which was our interview with Professor Yossi Sheffi. That is quickly approaching 200 downloads for us. That is a true success. We, we, it was a great conversation with Professor Sheffi. Did surprise us a little bit that it turned out to be the most downloaded show of the year, actually, for this year. Um, so it was an awesome conversation. But there are others that you should go back and listen to. You know, we had the police chief of New Orleans on. We had comedian Josh Johnson on. We had two great episodes at the beginning of 2021 uh, with a Pulitzer Prize winning uh, professor or author, rather, and then also a professor um, from uh, a University of Memphis. We had a great conversation about, you know, where are we now as far as, you know, America and race relations. And so I would urge you during the break, go back and listen to all these great conversations and topics. They are definitely worth re-listening to and sharing with those around you as you go off, you know, during your holidays and you're traveling, meeting your families like we're going to be doing, make sure you bring up the Black Agenda and some of the things that we're talking about here. Um, so for me and Adrian, it's been awesome. And before we go, I did want to say, you know, Adrian, I have my thoughts. I told you this was an awesome year. It's our first full year of podcasting. I had to think about that. <laughs> I was like, well, wait, we did it last year, but it wasn't a full year. So this year we actually got a full year's worth of Black Agenda, you know, podcasting and things like that. It's been a a challenge, but I think it's also been interesting. And I would say a success, you know, nearly 7,000 downloads in a year is pretty good for two guys from Mississippi. And we're continuing to, you know, plow through and and make it even better. Yeah. And to hit that 7,000 number, you know, just season three alone was about 45 to 4,600 of those downloads. So Listeners, I don't know what it was about this season, but you definitely enjoyed it. Uh, and we appreciate that. We were really trying to make this season better, uh, making sure that we capitalize on what we were doing good in season one and two, but also trying to incorporate some things that would make us better. Um, that's what it's always about, building back better. Uh, and that's what we're trying to do here at the, at the Black Agenda. But I, I really have been excited about this season, listeners. And I've been you know, telling you thanks you know, over and over. And I'll continue to do that because you're the reason why we're doing this. Uh, and we get those numbers because y'all care about what we're talking about. And another tidbit to kind of lead toward, well, I guess, lean into our success. We actually just hired two interns. So the Black Agenda, you know, we've got some help. Our team is growing. We look forward to hiring more interns. If you're listening to us and you care about social justice issues, if you care about what's going on in the government, if you would like to work on the team of the Black Agenda podcast, we are accepting applicants uh, for journalists, social media coordinators, and a scheduler uh, if you'd like to do that, but more so on the journalists and social media because we got one scheduler. So yeah, if you want to help us, you know, more than just donating, you want to be on the team, we'd look forward to having you on there. But like I said, I'm so thrilled at what we're doing uh, here, Devin, and I know that season four is going to be just as awesome. That's right. It's going to be just as awesome, just as awesome as this year, probably better. 2022 is going to be great. And we, like you say, the team is growing, which means we get to do more here. We get to really focus our efforts and making this podcast the best it can be. And trust and believe there's going to be some great content coming to you in 2022. Make sure you get ready. Subscribe. Make sure you should already be subscribed to us on all the major platforms. But if you aren't, we're on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeart, Google Podcasts, you name it. We're there. Wherever you listen to your music, you need to be subscribed to us so you don't miss out 
on what we're doing here. So our last thoughts here, happy holidays to you and your family, safe travels, uh, both as you're traveling, but also with staying healthy. We do know we're going into the winter season. They're talking about a new, you know, new variant of COVID-19. Booster shots are available. If you're not going to get a booster, at the very least, take the proper precautions, wash your hands, you know, wear your mask if you think you need it, proper distancing. Just try to take care of yourselves as we get through this holiday season and also be a little bit more patient with those around you. Like what Mike Webb said about misinformation, patience is the first thing in understanding and trying to talk to people who don't agree with you. So understand that they did not arrive at their beliefs overnight. So have a little patience as you go home and talk to your your parents or your grandparents about the black agenda and what you heard. So <laughs> make us a topic of conversation there, but we appreciate you sticking with us through 2021 and we will see you in 2022. So until then, we'll catch you next time. 